Hello, and welcome to the Asking for More podcast. I'm your host, Mazarine Trades. Our systems are broken and we need to ask for more, not just for ourselves, but for every woman that comes after us. If we're going to get through this time, we need to acknowledge the trauma of the last two years and realize there's no such thing as going back to business as usual. That means you need to learn to ask for more, and I want to help you do that. Why should you listen to me? Over the last 12 years, I've helped so many women ask for more in their work, ask for more from systems, and ask for more with salary negotiations. So I decided to put together this podcast and the Asking for More Mastermind. I have the lens of an extremely privileged white, cis, queer, middle-class woman living in North America. What works for me may not work for you, depending on intersecting repression. If I say anything hurtful or harmful, I'm always open and willing to do better. I love helping you ask for more. It's truly my calling and I cannot wait to connect with you. Let's go. Everybody, welcome to the Asking for More podcast. I'm so excited today to introduce Sarah Oliveri, who is just a lovely person I've known for years now. We've hung out, we've worked together on things. And today I she had this incredible idea that I want to talk with you about, about how we can ask for more in a more supported way in our organizations. And we're going to talk about class, we're going to talk about power, we're going to talk about boards. And uh, Sarah, can you tell us what is bringing you joy about your work right now and what turns you on to work on? Yeah. Oh, man. So I work with nonprofit leaders, primarily executive directors who in turn work with their teams and with their boards. And we help reshape the way they run their organizations so that they make a bigger impact, but also have more time, more joy, right? I think this is work that should be joyful. And um, I'm a total like business nerd, (laughs) but I'm also come from the nonprofit world. So, you know, I don't usually say this out loud, but I'm a humanist, right? I lo- I care for people. Um, and one of the beautiful things is that caring for how we treat people and how we run business, nonprofit, the business of nonprofits really well actually goes hand in hand because nonprofits, like all organizations, all communities, all businesses are primarily made up of people. <laughs> and, um, you know, the happier, more empowered those people are, um, the more opportunities there are to solve the world's most challenging problems, which to me is what nonprofits are here to do. And I'm really driven by this feeling that like, when it comes to looking at businesses overall, nonprofits are just more important. And in fact, they're a little bit more complicated as business models. And so you actually have to be better at business to run a nonprofit. And I know I'm probably jumping ahead, but we've, in our pre-conversation, we talked a little bit about class. And I think, you know, I, I really realized like so often people in the nonprofit space are feeling like, you know, we're subpar. We don't know as much about business. We're not trained. We're, they act like servants, you know, we just have to beg for the scraps and figure out how to change the world's most, you know, complex problems using the bare minimum. And I just want nothing more, you know, I love to do it with my own clients, but I want nothing more to see that paradigm flipped on its head. I will, I will end my life peacefully as an old woman when the for-profit, you know, Googles of the world are looking to the nonprofit industry for how to do business better. 
I love that so much, Sarah, because what you're talking about is something I heard on the Upstream podcast recently about new business models. And we constantly here in the nonprofit sector run like a business, learn from businesses. But honestly, if we're looking at an economic model that's more based around degrowth, which is a concept that comes from sociology, check it out. Um, we, we see that the, uh, the rampant unfettered capitalism that we let a lot of our big corporations get away with is actually killing our planet. And we see like this motive kind of reproduced in our fundraising departments as well, like bigger, bigger, more, more. And then we see this class as well reproduced between like the ruling class and everybody else at the federal level. And then also inside of our organizations, and you are a board nerd as well, I know. So uh, we talked about you uh, researching how boards came to be in America 300, 400 years ago. Could you please talk to us about what your research has shown? I think we all want to yeah. hear <laughs> so, you know, I, I nerded out on board history as I was preparing um, for a board retreat. And, you know, what I discovered was the birth of nonprofits as we kind of know them today is really the same birth as the modern corporation, right? What we know of corporations today. And, you know, to give you 300 years of history in a real nutshell and make it a little fun. Um, so, you know, those of you who might remember like a lot of, you know, the Europeanness of um, the United States today came over, the Puritans came over. Um, I'm actually a, a Puritan descendant myself. Um, and um, so they came over. Yeah, they did lots of terrible things um, to Native Americans who were already here and doing wonderful things. And they had slaves and they were terrible in lots of ways but they were also escaping their own terrible situation for them, right? Many of us live in our little, our bubbles of our ourness, and they were escaping um, their religious persecution for themselves. Mm -hmm. And what the, the situation was, is you basically had England, who was, you know, a monarchy, and the church and state were the same. So if you were previously organizations that helped people, charities, things that helped society, things that were not profitable, but still needed something to be done about them. In the, the English model, though a lot of things were taken care of by the church. And those things that were technically taken care of by the state were actually also the church because they were one in the same. So what happens is these Puritans come over and they're like, hey, we need to start creating our next class of leaders. And we wanna create an education institution to create these leaders, right? What you and I are doing today, we're making the next generation of leaders and we don't want them to be the English church, right? We don't want them indoctrinated in that because that, those aren't our beliefs. And so they created, boop, 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 Harvard um, in order back in 16, I'll probably get the date wrong, 1630, I think it was, maybe it was 1635. You can Google it. It's that Harvard loves to like advertise how long they've been around. A long time ago. And Harvard's basically like both the first nonprofit and the first corporation. And, and Puritans, for reasons we don't have to get into, um, they knew they're all about business because they kind of operate from this mindset of being good of business is a sign that you're like cool with God, right? It's real oversimplified, but that's, it's tied into their religious beliefs, why they're so into business. 
and so they knew corporations. So they're like, okay, we're going to form corporations. They actually formed corporations to be their governments too initially. And that was the other kind of first businesses. And so these first businesses are not, you know, trade businesses. They are serving the people businesses. And then what got really interesting as I was looking up early boards is there was this legal battle with the Harvard board. So Harvard had kind of two boards. They had like a board of professors who kind of were like a deciding type board. And then they had a board of supporters who kind of had like rights to like hang out and say like, I belong here and I'm cool, but they didn't actually have any decision-making power. And one of the very early presidents wanted to raise more money to grow Harvard. He wanted to start bringing in money from wealthy Puritans in England, not just the people who'd come over to uh, the Americas. And, um, and so he wanted, you know, people who have money often feel like they want to also control their money, right? We know that today, right? So he was like, oh, I'm going to give my board of like donors more power because then they'll want to give more and they want to feel like they have power. And an intense legal battle waged so intense that the court said, we can't even decide. You're going to just have to deal with this problem yourself. And in the end, he kind of lost. And I think they maintained, I mean, I guess if you have a board of lawyers and a board of not donors, probably the board of lawyers might kind of win a legal argument. But so that was this early, these early tensions between people with the money wanting to decide, and then people with the, the skin in the game about how the work was done, wanting to decide. And you see that conversation continue on through the next 300 years. And the sad part of the revealing of my research is we haven't really, like, it's not like we progressed. <laughs> it's kind of been like a up and down and up and down. But my own conclusion is that, um, and this has been concluded many times over, it's not just my conclusion, right, is that People once, so it was very baked into law at one point that people who gave money into a nonprofit no longer controlled that money. They no longer owned that money. And that was in question for quite a while legally. Um, and to this day, you know, there's still conversations, right? Are we building a fundraising board? Are we getting our board to fundraise? Are we growing a group of wealthy people, well-connected people who are going to, you know, be funding? We hear that language all over the place. It's the board's responsibility to ensure that there are the fi adequate financial resources. But unfortunately, what we do when we grow boards in that way and give them that decision-making power is we invite all of the inequities and biases that are already baked into our money power system, and they're all there for sure, we invite them into our organizations. And then we get this you know, really important conversation about DEI and boards, but I think as important as that is, if we stop inviting all of that onto our boards in the first place, our jobs inside our relatively small organizations become a lot easier because one small organization probably isn't going to eliminate, you know, our entire society's systemic inequities and biases, um, mm -hmm. you know, just through a board. So let's, you know, stop doing that. And then the other thing is, um, uh, I really believe in this concept of skin in the game and decision making. People who are making 
high risk, high stake decisions need to be experiencing the positive and negative consequences of their own decisions. And when board members are making decisions, they don't really suffer the consequences of their bad decisions. But when staff members make decisions, they usually suffer dearly when they make bad ones. And so there's just now this natural system, I'm a systems nerd, right? That's re, if when staff are making decisions or anybody who's gonna experience the consequences of their decisions, what, that's a natural system, right? It reinforces good decisions and it you know, negatively penalizes you for bad decisions naturally. And so you start shifting from a system that's designed to breed inequity to a system that's designed to produce results. Um, and so that's my, you know, kind of where, where my board thinking landed in a nutshell of deep diving into 300 years of history. You know what? I love that you brought that up, Sarah, because we see this happen and we see this play out in the news over and over again, um, whether it's Elon Musk, whether it's uh, ex-president Trump, whether it is uh, other folks that we've quote unquote trusted to lead us or tell us things, we see this Puritan attitude as um, we've talked about before, that if you have a lot of money, you must know everything. And if you're poor, you must be stupid. But also I really am glad you brought in the power dynamics of how if you have a lot of money, you're protected from consequences. And that is something that I never actually mapped onto the boards and nonprofits before. And you're just blowing my mind over here. Um, you really are. So I want to say thank you for that. And also um, that makes me think about, we talk so much about governance instead of power. And I think governance is a really boring word. And I think power is a very interesting word. And I love how you're just bringing that right in here. Um, and so, you know, Power dynamics. How do we name and identify power dynamics? You started doing it already, but please tell me more. Yeah. Power, you know, I, I'm not a power hungry person, but I love the concept of power and playing yeah. with it. And, you know, so in this, in every, in everyday life, right, we, we run across people who are afraid of power, people who want power, um, people who need power, um, who don't have it. And I think, you know, just kind of bring it a bit into the nonprofit space. I'll use these words, although power is universal in many ways. You know, there's your there's your power to force somebody else to do something, right? Real authoritative power, um, and within that kind of a very modern way is the the authority to make decisions. I think that's a really important thing to be aware of in your organization. Who are you giving the authority? to make decisions. So I'm just gonna park that for a second and we'll come back to it. Um, and then you, there's your influential power, right? Because getting other people to do what you ask them to do, for the most part, we don't use manipulations like beating people or killing people anymore. Humans used to do that. Um, and we still do it, unfortunately, to um, a large degree. But there's lots of ways to, lots of positive, even more effective ways to get people to go along with you, you know, creating a team, maybe making people feel like they're part of a tribe or that they're members, that they belong, that their sum together is greater 
than their parts as individuals, that they, a person can join your movement, your organization, and make an even bigger impact joining you than they could on their own. That's extremely motivating to people. And people are, I think, naturally motivated to belong. You know, I like to say like, if you put like, you know, 50 people together in a room and leave them alone for a weekend, like they're gonna create some sort of community. They're, they're like, we just naturally do this. And the funny thing is, you know, we've seen so many models in recent history of higher, really hierarchical structure. And you talked about that, right? Like, and nonprofits, like that's the only way, I don't teach that kind of model, but so often nonprofits are like strict hierarchies. And so to bring that back to decision-making and the quality at which we run our businesses and the quality at which we treat our people, you know, our tendency, because it's a model we we know, it's just familiar. There's no, there's lots of evidence that it's not the best model. This hierarchical model tends to bottleneck decision-making. And it tends to say, we're just gonna have one or two people make all the decisions. And that's actually problematic because as an organization, you then have less power. Your, your power as an organization, your ability to grow and do things and take action is really limited by your ability to make quality decisions. If you wanna be able to make more quality decisions, you need to distribute decision-making power across many people and you need to maximize the diversity and quality of information that's feeding those decisions. And that's where we start to see, oh, like biases are not good for having lots and lots of information. We need diversity. We need to give different types of leaders access to like be part of this decision-making matrix. And the more people we have who can get better information and make decisions, the more as organizations we can gain power. So, but it's like, it's like this human thing. We just wanna like clench in and like cramp down on decision-making. And then we're really, we're, we, one person may feel powerful and they may feel like it's safer, but it's actually the opposite. It's actually yes. risky and dangerous. And this is the pattern I see nonprofits stuck in way too much. Well, let's talk about why that is just for a little second. Um, you said that this com country was set up to, you know, benefit corporations. I mean, honestly, that's the story of the Boston Tea Party. We want to pay taxes. That's why we're here. But also people were fleeing from persecution. What people don't talk about with the Puritans is that they were considered big weirdos in a very bad way in England. Like they were dressing their babies like little adults. They're like, don't have fun. If you have fun, you're a bad person. You know, like that's kind of how they were. And then I kind of like extrapolated our whole society in different ways. And so, um, you know, the the joy and the fun of life does get taken out if you act that way. <laughs> and so like we have been unconsciously recreating these dynamics in our entire society, not just in nonprofits, but in corporations, in our, our, our family units, you know, having an authoritative 50s, you know, male figure, et cetera, et cetera. So, when you try to break out of these, this is the historical context of why that could be hard for you, right? This is why you haven't seen these power dynamics before. This That's is right. why- it's why your reaction is to like clench in and grasp power as opposed to distribute it. If you learn right. something else, I grew up with kind of a different model in this 
you know, weird little private school that I went to as a young child, um, and also a bunch of socialist Quakers. Um, and Quakers are a great example of a religion that just chose to distribute power as opposed to constrain it. You know, the the Puritans were the the group of the pre predestination, right? They basically just God had all the power and God just decided before you were even born. <laughs> now deal with that, people, right? As opposed to the Quakers who are like. God's in like everyone and everything. And so, you know, we feel it's because of that history. I'm so glad that we feel this need to clench. But um, the reality is it's more effective to distribute, you know? Yes. So if you are feeling nervous or like something's risky, what you need to do is say, give me more information, more inputs, distribute the decision-making among pe better people, people who are going to experience the effects people who have more experience in that area, spread it around. Yeah. And you were saying the other day about, you know, the importance of listening to voices. You know, you're such a leader in, um, in your area. You know, I think you're a leader for women and you're a leader for fundraisers, but you may not, you're not a black leader, right? You're not an African-American leader and you can be a leader in one area and a follower in another area. And you were talking about showing up strong as a follower and raising other leader voices who aren't being heard. And I think that, you know, that's a great example of this kind of distributed leadership. Like, you know, you people over here who are experts in this kind of experience and this dynamic, you make those decisions and I'll follow along and I'll be over here in my corner where I'm amazingly experienced and, and know how it's going and experience the consequences and I'll make decisions over here. And then you are, and through this podcast, you're building power. You're making the whole thing more powerful in an exciting way, I think. Thank you so much for that. I feel like we're both experts in our own ways about, you know, but for me, I'm still a baby in talking about power. And that's why I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I'm, uh, I, I still feel like there's so much to say about it. And, and, and there's so much to look at historically about why we feel like we don't have it. And one of the typical images in a nonprofit, right, is the female fundraiser. Our fundraising profession is 75 to 80% women, right? Like being like, please give me money. The supplicant to the male donor who's all like, sure, I'll give you money, you know? And so like, uh, there's so many things that play out here, right? There's so many reasons why this is. And I love that we're just giving it a historical context. Um, uh, before we started talking, we talked a teeny little bit about uh, Eugene Debs and how in the 1800s, he was trying to do equal pay for women. He was trying to get black people into unions, but he was voted down for that. And like, even though he was still a racist guy and whatever, um, I'm really glad you brought up you know, uh, bias and, and how we overcome that. And, and, and he thought, you know, if we have bias, if we get everybody get paid more, a lot of our bias will take care of itself. And so that's why I'm really happy we're having this discussion after I talked with John Good of Choose 180 in Seattle, because he is paying all of his employees 80,000 a year and the staff and the board agreed to this and then they convinced him and he's the executive director. So like when we talk about class, we have to also talk about money and we talk about asking for more. And so the yeah. issue with Puritanism is that as the elect, if you have money, you know everything. If you don't have money, you're stupid. And so we've recreated this in our nonprofits because we're like, oh, well, staff shouldn't decide whether or not they get a new donor database. The board should be like, we have to approve that. And what's wrong with that, Sarah? Why? <laughs> 
why should we not do that? <laughs> yeah, you know, like so many nonprofit people, I did my days on nonprofit boards and as an executive director and my elders said, well, this is the way it is. These are the best practices. But now that I'm a little older and a little braver and I've seen a lot more nonprofits, whenever I hear best practice, I say, let me give that like the BS test, right? Does it, <laughs> if, it doesn't, if it doesn't pass logic muster, then I start going deep, like my 300 year deep dive into board history. Yes. And, you know, so it goes back to, right? Who is the most qualified to make a decision? And approval is a decision to move forward. And I think, you know, as, as we had talked about kind of privately, my new thinking is board should be in general confirming, which means double checking, but not approving, which is a form of deciding what to do. Mm -hmm. Because, and I, I'm gonna answer your question directly, but you know, you said, we say governance, it's a confusing word. What does it really mean? Governance is a form of having power over things, right? Which isn't, it can be bad, it can be good, right? There's the, you know, power, power people feel different things, but power in itself is a neutral force, right? It's kind of how we wield it that makes, um, makes the difference. So, you know, so this goes back to like, what is governance, right? And I think the simplest way to understand governance is it had good governance has two parts. Bad governance has these two parts still, but they're run by the same person. So the two parts of governance are deciding what's going to happen, having the authority to decide, and double checking or confirming whether or not the decision you just made was any good, right? So if I am deciding and then evaluating my own actions, that's not great governance, unless I'm really, really good at like, saying no, Sarah, which I personally am okay at, but most people, you know, are not very good at saying next time you have to do better yourself, right? You, <laughs> um, oh, some people beat themselves up like that. Better governance, especially when we start wielding power over a lot of things and over systems, we want to have a good governance. Good governance is when the set of people who make the decisions and the set of people who double check the decisions are different people. And so then we have to ask ourselves, who's most qualified to make to be the decision-making group? And the people who are, I believe in nonprofits are the most qualified to be the decision-making group are generally the staff. Often there's a CEO, maybe some other kind of high level leadership people. It doesn't have to be all hierarchical though. Oftentimes people, you know, anybody who's in it day to day and anybody who's going to suffer painfully day to day if things go south. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I like to work with CEOs, because on the one hand, they have to deal with the ramifications in their jobs. But if they really blow it, they'll blow their whole career, they'll ruin their reputation, and they will lose their livelihood in the nonprofit sector forever. That's a lot to have on the line because they have a lot of responsibility. They have a lot of skin in the game and as do many other staff members. And I'm a huge advocate of, you know, the most boots on the ground people having a lot of say um, and a lot of decision-making authority, right? Cause I believe that when, the more we can spread decisions amongst very diverse group of people who all have skin in the game, 
the bet, the more power we're going to have to make the world a better place. Now, who is going to do the double checking? Now, how, what do you need to double check, right? You need to have access to the information that you're double checking and you need to have, you know, the time and space to really think through it critically and ask some critical questions. Um, so I think, you know, boards as they, as they have to exist legally are a good option for being the double checkers. Besides, you know, we have to have them legally still. Ultimately, that may not be the ultimate best structure for who's the best double checker, but I would love to see boards being the double checkers. I'd love to stack boards with the, the kinds of people or the actual people who do experience the, the outcomes that this organization is getting, but really not to cross that divide. A double checker, a confirmer shall not be a decision maker. The confirmer shall not decide who is going to work at the organization, maybe apart from the CEO, because somebody has to be hired to start hiring other people and so on. Who is the bet, you know, should the double checkers be deciding how the money should be spent, also known as a budget, right, a financial plan? You know, if I were to ask me, who's going to know best how to make money produce results? And so often we don't ask that question when we talk about approving budgets. We say, is it in the red? <laughs> you know, is it a balanced budget? But the question you should be asking when you think about is your budget any good, which is the most important question is, is your financial plan going to produce enough money and enough impact and in the right balance as you could for the amount of money that you have to work with and getting yourself to the next level? That's the real, the real question there. Who is really going to know the best place to spend a dollar? And it's, it's not going to be the board members. I can tell you that. It's going to be staff members working together with lots of information, lots of input. And I, you can just go through, you know, you, feel, you can ask me or anybody wants to write in, like, just take each decision and ask yourself, who is the most qualified, most informed person that we could put the decision-making, you know, in their hands. Mm -hmm. But I do say in their hands, right? Because if you leave decision-making up to a committee, you will not be able to make any quick decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have individuals and, and they won't be as accountable. I think it's important to have individuals be accountable and have decision-making authority, but we just need to spread it amongst as many individuals as we can. You know, I really love that more egalitarian way of distributing power, Sarah. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of Choose 180 again and how Sean Good, you know, took his leadership from the board and the staff together collectively saying, pay us all 80,000 a year. Don't ask us how we want to expand programs until you do that. They're a small nonprofit, but they're part of a coalition of nonprofits that does this. And when I give my presentations about the great resignation or how uh, we can treat staff better, how we can be a staff advocate because you lose 117% of a fundraiser salary every time they leave your organization and you gain you know, half a million dollars if they stay for three years, according to Signet Research Group's donor-centered leadership, um, that's just on average and people are not looking at that cost. And so mm -hmm. I feel like um, if you want your staff to stay and we are going through this right now, it behooves you as a leader to think of how can I help us save more money, 
make more money uh, and, and, and distribute power differently if staff in fact do have more power by virtue of, of this great reshuffle, if you will, how can I make my nonprofit the most attractive place to work, right? And 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 having people, I mean, again, I, I keep going back to this, Sarah, that don't have any consequences for their decisions, make decisions is so counterintuitive. I just never realized that before, you know? So thank you for that, like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And, you know, if you folk, there's hiring and, and building a diverse team is important. But if you focus on that question, you'll get it pretty close. Right. So if, you know, if you're just saying, you know, maybe you don't have, you know, a bajillion resources, but you want to, you know, move your team forward. Think about, you know, who are we missing on our team or how could we divide up decision-making power amongst who we already have so that, um, you know, that we, those people who have the most in, skin in the game have authority um, and, the, and the information piece, right? So skin in the game often goes hand in hand with information, right? Because when you're on the ground doing the work, you have a lot of information coming into you. Um, and it's so important too, when we think about, you know, eliminating or reducing systemic inequities and biases in our workplaces. And I say that because when we, to me, when we eliminate systemic biases and systemic inequities, we create equity, we create access, we create diversity, we create, um, I'm probably missing, inclusion, right? All of these things that we talk about wanting to create, we invite all of those things when we focus on eliminating bias and inequities because those are the big barriers. Um, and when we're distributing decision-making, like I'm talking about now, instead of having maybe three leadership power opportunities to promote a new diverse mind into, we have 10 or 15 opportunities. So we're not putting the weight on, you know, the one black woman in your organization who's supposed to carry the representation for like the whole world, right? Now we have instead of one position to promote into 10 positions to promote into. The weight can be distributed, the opportunity for, you know, only, one person can only be so diverse in themselves, right? That's not actually how we get diversity through individuals. We get diversity through a collection of individuals. So expand the number of opportunities for people to be leaders and you will greatly expand your ability to be diverse in all ways of being diverse. You know, I came, did a lot of my initial diversity work in the developmental disability community. And we talked a lot about how can you build a workforce of people with developmental disabilities who can be challenging to hire and work with, and how can we embody, um, you know, if we're advocating for people to have meaningful employment, how can we embody that in our own staff? How much can we, you know, stuff ourselves full of our own goodness <laughs> um, and with all of its challenges too. You know, so I so want to, yeah, I want to bring back a couple things that you said. Um, and I feel like when we talk about bias and we talk about power and we talk about money together, what we're kind of talking around and I just want to like tie it up a little bow is that 
we respect people more if they have more money. And the reason I got into fundraising was because I realized that if I didn't have any money, no one was going to listen to me. And I was like, how do you get people to listen to you to do the right thing in the world? And that is kind of basically saying, all right, instead of trying to get rid of this bias, let's work with this bias because we all have it for now and get you more. And so like that helps you actually ask for more. If you can be more of an even footing with your donors, instead of being like, I'm only making 45,000 a year. Hey, Mr. Millionaire, please give me money. It just, it doesn't work. Right. And then like, it's still recreating these very destructive white supremacy power dynamics. Right. Um, So I'm really, really glad that you keep bringing this up. And I feel like if we do distribute power in a more flat way in our organizations, we're going to get so much more of what we want. We're going to get more equity. We're going to get more, uh, uh, people understanding what their biases are and hopefully shifting them because suddenly we're all on the same footing. It, it can it also help, you know, inter-organization uh, bias as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you talked about that. The other thing I want to say, and we'll, we'll come back if you have more things to say about that, but you keep saying skin of the game. Skin in the game is such a cool concept that I learned from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. F just has a That's book out called I Skin in the Game, yeah. right? One of my yeah, favorites. So oh my God. We can talk about Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He has some problematic things, but also he has some really good, like, hey, you know what? Uh, if you don't have consequences for your actions, then you shouldn't be talking you know, and uh, you shouldn't be considered an expert in anything. And so I feel like a lot of times because of our internalized bias against nonprofits, right? And our own internal inner critic that says, you don't have a lot of money. How dare you have any opinion about anything? Um, We don't know that's happening inside of ourselves. And I love to help my clients really be like, oh, this is what's really happening. How can I shut off that inner critic voice and be like, no, (laughs) wrong. I'm proud of myself for this. And I'm grateful for that and this is what I desire and let's get there together you know what I mean like we have such an unconsciousness that pervades why we continue to like recreate these very destructive white supremacist power structures inside and outside of ourselves you know what I mean and I'm glad you highlighted you know I've been talking about decision makings as as a way to exercise power and so often we you know, we're used to attaching money and power because of this history. And so we assume that if we don't have money, we don't have decision-making power. But money is not the only thing of value. And we can, you, even the most impoverished person can make a decision. Often the options are a little less, but they are still some of the most powerful decisions that we have seen leaders make, whether or not you eat, whether or not you speak. Nobody can take those decisions away from a human being. Those are like some of the most fundamental core decisions that are really hard to take away from a person. And, you know, just to bring it back to fundraising, I love, you know, the other side of that story, you know, get, get, leave those conversations that Mazarin's saying to leave behind and add the conversation, that person with money who may be interested in donating to you there's something that they're feeling or not feeling that they would like to be feeling. They are missing purpose. And go ask any miserable wealthy person or any wealthy person is going to tell you that at some point they realized that having money does not mean you're going to be happy. 
Happiness is not derived from money. Fulfillment is not derived from money. And your gift as nonprofit folks is you have fulfillment. You have meaning. You have the key to happiness. And it is your gift to people who have money and people who don't to be able to invite them to participate in getting the result that you're getting and for them to feel all of those amazing good feelings because they were part of it. When I think about a wealthy donor and the poor nonprofit, it is the nonprofit that has more value to give in that scenario than the person with the money. The amount of value that you can give to a single human being by giving them the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing with their money, the thing that they couldn't do on their own with their hands is worth every penny and probably hundreds of thousand dollars more than you're even asking for <laughs> to them. I really you love how more. you frame that. I love how you frame that. That really does help people who are listening to this ask for more. And if you're a consultant listening to this and you're thinking about how do I talk to my clients about this, you know, uh, you have an opportunity to now advocate for uh, a restructuring of the board, uh, a restructuring of how you work with uh, your staff in the organization. Um, and helping empower the people that are currently there to say, uh, yeah, I need to be paid more. I need more vacation. I also need um, to have more say in my decisions. Uh, I don't know how many times I've come from a meeting with a client banging my head against a wall saying, wow, they're really gonna try to do this database that I know doesn't work because somebody on the board has decided that that's what they're going to do. And now they're using spreadsheets and in a year, they might have a database that isn't going to work. And um, so uh, this will help stop that problem. And, yes. and, and, you know, giving people positional power, right? Like it's hard for people to let go of power. Sarah, what do you do to help people let go of power? That's a hard one, to be honest. And it depends how conditioned they are with that fear response. I think a lot of people learn well from examples. If they can see examples of other people who let go of power and got more of what they want. I think the first uh, thing to really ask yourself is, what is it that I really want? Mm -hmm. And then is me holding on to all that power really the best way mm -hmm. to get that? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. on occasion it is. Like sometimes in an emergency situation, it's helpful to consolidate you know, power in certain spots so that you can move extra quickly, but that's like a very temporary situation for speed. Um, but for the most part, really dig into that, right? What is it that I really want to accomplish? Like if you feel yourself having that grasp reaction, what is it you really want? Mm -hmm. And then you've got to override your emotional brain, right? Which is good doing that first reaction and kick. And I love Daniel Kahneman talks about thinking fast and slow, brain one, mm -hmm. brain two, right? Your initial thinking pattern is always going to be the emotional thing. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes good. It's good for forming community. It's bad for making decisions and weighing risk. Really bad. We suck at that as, as our brains, right? So you've got to say, oh, now I got to make a decision that needs information. So I'm going to quiet the emotions 
I'm gonna turn on the logic brain. It's gonna work a little slower. I'm gonna run the numbers. Ew, but you have to sometimes run the numbers. I'm gonna ask better questions, right? Who really should be making this decision? What do I really want out of it? And again and again, you know, I said I work primarily with executive directors. They want to see better results and they don't want to work harder and harder and harder. They're often working themselves way too hard. They're often way understaffed. I've seen that too. I've seen that too. Yeah. And the scariest part is by holding on to that power, they're causing themselves to be stuck in that situation. Say it again for the people in the back. Say it again for the people in the back. Say it again. (laughs) By holding on to that power, you are causing yourself to be overworked, underpaid, under-resourced, and basically making a crappy impact at your nonprofit. More people will suffer because you were afraid to let go. That is beautiful. And yes, and true. I would go one step farther from an ideological and psychological and I would say global perspective. When you're holding on to power, that is white supremacy. The whole sector in a nutshell is white people saying, I know better than all these other people, right? So our snow-capped organizations need to shift. Here's my challenge to leaders listening to this podcast. How can I be a traitor to patriarchy? And how can I be a traitor to whiteness? If you're a woman, you may still be all wrapped up in this. If you're even a person of color, you may still be wrapped up in whiteness. And so really start thinking about that. I have a pod, I have a blog post called, boringly, the zombie apocalypse is already here. Um, and so it's a little bit more about that, but I love your idea, Sarah, of like being like, let's look at examples of how people have let go of power. I think that's what we really need right now. And the next conference that I do, um, not the one that's coming up in August called the Nonprofit Consulting Conference, but the next one that I do, I'm really gonna have a panel of people talking about how to be a traitor to these two things, how to be a traitor to patriarchy, how to be a traitor to whiteness, because also that's really what, I mean, if I could just tie it up in a bow again, we're talking about when we uh, flatten our power structures and say we don't have to do things the way the Puritans did. Yeah, we and I think to remember, yeah. right, when you flatten decision-making structure, mm-hmm. you don't flatten power-making structure. You right. enhance the total amount of power mm-hmm. when you distribute decisions. Mm-hmm. So, and this really, it's subtle, but really important, right? So I think bringing about equity, raising voices who have traditionally been squashed, raising that power is not just about swapping, you know, it's not just about swapping who's sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. But I want everybody who is advocating for more equity, more diversity to say, we're not just going to swap a chair. We're going to turn one chair into 10. And then we're coming out, right? And that's the magic that I see with my clients, where first we're turning one into 10. And as we do that, we're being mindful of chair swapping. We're not replicating that white supremacist 
you know, system that's deeply ingrained at, you know, and everyone's going to make mistakes, right? Part of being bold includes doing a bunch of stupid things too. And we have to be forgiving and intentional and watching ourselves as we do this. Um, but we should be brave most of all and try. Don't let the fear prevent you from trying. And, mm -hmm. um, but I want you to replicate that power because mm -hmm. a one-to-one -one swap only is not going to cut it. It's not going to sway the tide because the power has been taken away from too many people and you need to not just take over you need to expand your power and i think power to me is like love it's not a finite resource the mm -hmm. more you love the more love is out in the world the more you expand your ability to exert power as an organization the more power is out there to wield mm. in the direction that you'd like to change the world Mm, Sarah, I feel like we could talk about power for hours and I just love this. I want to talk more with you. Um, so I'm sure we'll have you back. And uh, can you tell people again, kind of what you love doing and how they can contact you? Yeah. So I love if you're listening to this and you're going, I want to be that organization. You're my person. You're my people. <laughs> Come talk to me. <laughs> uh, find me at Pivot Ground is the name of my um, organization pivotground.com. And um, you can apply to work with me. Uh, there's free resources there. Um, but if you want great stuff, you should pay for it. Uh, it's one of my, because for your own skin in the game, right? <laughs> I yes. learned that lesson that if I wanted to reap the benefit of someone else's advice, I should pay for it regardless of its value, but just so that I have some real skin in the game, put, put something in, make it hurt just a little so that you take action. The people I don't want to work with, if you don't want to take action, if you want to learn but not do, if you don't want to apply, if you don't want to get dirty and start getting into it, don't go to my website. <laughs> I want those who are saying, yes, I want to do this. I want to do it today. I want to get, you know, start, get my hands in the weeds. I want to get doing it um, and, and take imperfect action um, and start making a much bigger impact and experiencing some joy and some more time. I love it when my clients start taking vacations on top of all this good stuff we've talked about today. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. I think we have worked through the pandemic, a lot of us, and we've worked so hard for so long. And just hearing that we can let go of control, we can let go of these structures that are not serving us, and they actually never really have. Um, mm -hmm. I hope people listening contact Sarah ASAP. I think this is a very complex process, and they need someone, an expert like you, Sarah, to really lead them through it. So contact her pivotground.com. Thank you so right. much. Thanks, everybody. All right. That's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like today's show, please share it with another woman in your life. Go on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and leave a good review. It always helps people find us. And if you'd like to learn more about asking for more, I have uh, a mastermind called Asking for More. If you go to askingformore.com. And I'd love to uh, invite you to join us. So feel free to go check that out and see you next time. The Asking for More podcast was produced by Javelin Consort of Contessa Digital. And the intro and outro music is Brastronaut 
else.